I don't know about you, but are you ever discouraged uh, by what you see happening in our culture, by what's going on around us, things you read in the headlines, people you speak with? You ever find yourself downtrodden by that, wondering, have people lost their minds? We often, I think, feel that way as the Lord's people. We feel like we're swimming upstream all the time, wondering what is taking place all around us. However, what is more concerning to me is when I look around and see what is happening in the church. People who proclaim to be something different in the world in which we live claim to have new life in Christ, and yet there's poll after poll coming from certain organizations that poll churches and Christian people in America that tell us that there's increasingly little difference, little difference between people who claim to be followers of Christ inside the church and those who claim to have nothing of Christ outside the church. One theologian from a noted seminary wrote this. He said, Gallup and Barna, those are organizations that survey people in the church. He said, they hand a survey after survey demonstrating that evangelical Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, self-centered, and immoral as the world in general. In other words, he says, they keep pulling people that say they are Bible-believing Christians. But when you talk about how they live and their behavior, it's no different than their neighbor that would deny such a profession. And he says, we keep seeing this again and again and again. Divorce is more common among born-again believers than in the general American population. Only 6% of evangelicals give of their resources to the Lord's work or other causes. We're told that white evangelicals are the most likely to object to having a neighbor of another race. Josh McDowell, who's a noted apologist, has pointed out that the sexual promiscuity of evangelical youth is only a little less outrageous than that of their non-evangelical peers. And yet you have these people who proclaim to be followers of Jesus, and they would go out with this message, Jesus saves. My question is, if that's your life, Jesus saves from what? Does he really save? Does it really make a difference if you're a follower of Jesus? Is Jesus powerful enough to save you and change your life completely? Is he really mighty to save? Or do we just claim to be followers of Jesus because it gives us some sort of moral awareness 
It gives us some sort of comfort about us, but it doesn't really have anything to do with our day-to-day life and how we live in this world. What I would like to do with you in the next three weeks is really open up a short series on this passage in Ephesians chapter 2. But I want to title it from what we read of in Isaiah 63. And what we read in Isaiah 63 are these words about Jesus, the Messiah, that he is mighty to save. He is strong in salvation. That salvation isn't just somebody saying, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I go to church. I know when to stand in church. I know when to sit in church. I know the songs we sing in church. But being a follower of Jesus is transformative of your entire life. And I don't doubt that there would be people, even here this morning, we have a number of guests, and even people that have been here for some time in our assembly. I don't doubt that there may be some people who have claimed to be a follower of Jesus and in some sort of loose association with our congregation, and yet... It has never really sunk deeply into your heart of hearts what it means to be genuinely saved, converted, transformed. What does that look like? What difference does it make? Is Jesus really powerful enough To not just offer me fire insurance at the end of life and save me from hell. But is he powerful enough to deliver me from life dominating sin? Is he powerful enough to change me at the core of who I am? Is he really mighty to save in this way? I think this must have been on the minds of the people in Ephesus to whom Paul is writing in Ephesians chapter 2. Because God's people must have somehow been tempted to forget that God really is powerful in salvation. That when he does a work in somebody's heart, it is complete and entire and utterly transformative. Why do I say that? Because Paul is actually praying that believers in Ephesus would understand the power of salvation, the power of a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me show that to you. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, and Paul is actually stating a prayer for these believers in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verse 16. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. And he's speaking to church people, believing people. He's saying, I'm remembering you in my prayers. I'm praying for you. Now, when you pray for someone, you typically have requests. Maybe there's specific things that you pray for. We pray specific things for our missionary families when we gather together on Wednesday evenings. Here are Paul's requests in his prayer. Look at them in verse 18. Paul is praying, he says, because you've had the eyes of your heart enlightened, I am praying, number one, verse 18, that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you. Paul says, I pray that you're going to know this. Secondly, he's praying, the end of verse 18, 
What are the riches of the glorious inheritance of the saints? That you'll know the riches of the glorious of inheritance that awaits you. And finally, and this is our focus, verse 19, his third request is this. I am praying that you will know what is the immeasurable greatness of his, that is God's power toward us, who what? Here's what he's saying. I'm praying that you would know the amazing power of God toward you when you believe. Because you need to know that. Well, what is that power like? Well, look at verse 19 again. I'm asking that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, and it's according to the working of his great might, God's great might, and it's like this, verse 20. It's the same kind of power that he worked in Christ when he what? Okay, so we're talking about now someone who is dead and lifeless. We all know what that is. And now suddenly that person is raised to life. Christ was dead. He was brought to life. Would you say that's an amazing power? What kind of power does that? And Paul is praying and he's saying, I want you to know, believers, that that same power that brought Jesus back to life and the end of verse 20, seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, that that same kind of power is the power that God works in every true believer. Because now look at our text and look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 2. We could say, as Christ was dead, chapter 1, verse 20, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were what? You were dead. What does that mean? You all were dead. We all were dead. We're going to look at that. You were dead, just like Christ was dead, verse 4, but God did something. What did he do? Look down at verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God did what? Made us alive, just like he did with Jesus. Made us alive. And what did he do, verse 6? And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. Just like you were dead like Jesus, you were made alive by God, and God has seated you in heavenly places like Jesus, and he has done this for what reason? Verse 7 of chapter 2. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He did this for his own glory, and as a result, verse 8, by grace you have been what? Okay, now I just walked you through the text. This is the, the thought process of the Apostle Paul. But what he's talking to us about is this. It's salvation. You've been saved, but here's what God did to make that happen. And here's why he did it. Remember, this is what Paul has prayed for back in chapter 1 and verse 19. I'm praying that you would know more of this. Therefore, it's appropriate for us as God's people this morning to give our time to thinking of what God has done to save us, that we would know more of the power of God in doing so. 
Here's what I want you to understand this morning. That God is mighty to save people by His grace and for His glory. Now, I put that on the screen, and all of you look at that, and I doubt that the vast majority of you in here this morning would say, amen, that's absolutely right. Jesus saves. God's mighty to do that for his own glory. But honestly, don't we often doubt this? Can God save anyone? What about that coworker that constantly irritates you? That maybe even knows you're a believer, and because of that, they're constantly brash and even blasphemous. And maybe you've even said things under your breath like, there's no hope for that one. What kind of power would it take to save somebody like that? Or, on the other hand, we read this and we say, yes, God is powerful to save. Thank God, I'm saved. But maybe we don't really understand the depths from which God saved us. We don't really comprehend what this passage will unveil to us. And that's why Paul is writing and saying, I'm praying that you really know this. Because it's essential that you understand what God did to save us. So over the next three weeks, God willing, we will see that God's salvation toward us is powerful. He is mighty to save. And here's what we're going to examine together. This morning, Lord willing, we'll look that God is mighty in overcoming our plight. Why do we need saved? What's our condition? What's our problem? Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at God as mighty and showing His grace. What is grace? Why is it necessary? Why is that mighty? Finally, we're going to see that God is mighty in changing our course. That salvation isn't just fire insurance, as I said. It's a change of life. God is mighty to save. I want us to note, first of all, that God mightily overcomes our spiritual plight. This is what our text directs us to in the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. What is your greatest problem? Okay, if I gave you a survey this morning and I gave you a sheet of paper and I said, right on the top of that, what is your greatest problem? What would you put down? Well, I have this physical ailment. That's a big problem. I'm not making light of that. Well, I have a financial need. That's a great problem. I'm not making light of that. But is that your greatest problem? Well, I have this strained relationship. I have this problem in marriage. I have this struggle with kids. I have this issue at work. Those are problems... But I would suggest to you this morning that those are not your greatest problem. Our greatest problem is something that God teaches us in this passage, especially for people outside of Christ, that this really is the greatest 
problem, and that is this. We come into this world spiritually dead. That's what it says, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead. All right, what does it mean to be dead? Well, stating the obvious, right? It means non-responsive. But is this talking of physical death? You say, well, you come into the world dead? I thought when you came into the world, you were alive. And we are alive, but the Bible says that you are spiritually dead. And what is death? Well, what is physical death? If we're talking about death, let's talk about it in physical terms. Physical death is primarily a separation. That's how the Bible speaks of it. Look at this passage in James chapter 2. It says, for as the body apart from the spirit is what? Okay, we need to stand up and stretch this morning, right? For as the body apart from the spirit is... So what is death according to the Bible? It's when your spirit departs your body. There's a separation there. And Paul goes on to give the example, so faith apart from works is dead. But this is the way the Bible talks about death, as separation. So when we come to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, and it says, And you were dead, not physically, but spiritually, you're separated from what? Well, look over at Ephesians chapter 4. And look at verse 17. Paul writes and says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you, believer, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And to speak of Gentiles, he's speaking of people who do not have faith in Christ. They walk in the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of who? They're separated from life in who? God. And this is the sense in which Paul is describing Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. You were dead. We come into this world alienated from God. Separated from Him. Completely unresponsive to Him. Well, let me qualify that. Does that mean that every single person born into this world is completely and entirely unresponsive to God in everything. I mean, are we talking this death is like the person in the casket? And when you go up to the casket and you see the body there and you start talking to it or poking it, there's no response at all. Is this the kind of death that we're talking about spiritually, a person separated from God? Well, I don't think so, and here's why. Romans chapter 1 Verses 19 and 20 say this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And he's talking about unbelieving people. And it's saying that God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly what? Perceived. There's some sort of perception there ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. So this death isn't entirely cut off from God because God displays himself in creation and it says everybody sees that and they're accountable to that. John chapter 14, Jesus will say the spirit of God comes and he convinces the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. So there is some sense of awareness of God even in somebody that doesn't know God through Christ. 
So in what sense is every human being in this world born spiritually dead? Well, it's qualified in the next phrase back in Ephesians chapter 2, where we read, you were dead in what? You are dead in trespasses and sins. This is the sphere in which this death is consisting. That people come into this world entirely given over in this sense to their trespasses and their sins. What are those? How long has it been since you've seen a sign that says no trespassing? Maybe not long at all. But when you see that sign, what does it mean? Here's a boundary. The boundary is here. You must not cross the boundary. And what this is saying is people come into the world and they are dead and unresponsive actually to that boundary. They willingly cross the boundary. There's almost no acknowledgement of it. They are given over to constantly crossing the boundary. What is the boundary? The boundaries are God's moral qualifications, his moral law. That people, we would say, are unconscionable in breaking God's law. Completely given over to it. In addition, he says people are dead in trespasses crossing the boundary and in sins. Trespasses has the idea of sins of commission that are active. Sins is the idea of missing a mark. And so people are dead in that they continually fail to hit the mark that God requires of all human beings. And that mark is absolute love for God and absolute love for other people. And that's the summary of God's law. And it says that we fail, we come into this world dead on one hand, where we are trespassing God's moral laws, but also we are failing to meet the positive qualifications and do those things. Because of that, this is humans, human beings' greatest problem. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever thought about this? I asked you, what is your greatest problem? Have you ever come to the point where you've admitted you are your own greatest problem? We tend to think this way. My greatest problem is my spouse. And if they would just listen to me, or if they would just change, or if they would just do this or that, it would solve my problem. And may I suggest to you that you will never solve those issues until you first say, I actually am the greatest problem in this. Children do this with parents. Oh, my dad's always on me. Boy, can't wait to get out from under this because once I'm out from under this, all of my problems will be solved. And until you come to face to face with the fact that actually you are your greatest problem, it'll never be solved. 
We tend to think my boss is my greatest problem or my lack of education or my struggle financially or my physical ailment. And what the Bible does is he undercuts that. The Bible does through God's word. He undercuts that and he says, no, you need to get to the root of the problem and your greatest problem is you. My greatest problem is me. You know what? I am self-centered, and I am demanding, and I'm actually very good at making other people feel like they're my greatest problem. And until the Spirit of God opens our eyes to that, we are a walking problem. And what Ephesians 2 is teaching us when it comes to salvation is that we don't need reform of our circumstances. We don't need change of things outside of us. What you need is a resurrection. You need a new kind of life that acknowledges the real problem and actually turns from it and looks for God's grace to help you. I always chuckle when I read Ted Tripp. Ted Tripp wrote a a great book on child rearing, actually, Shepherding a Child's Heart. Ted Tripp is illustrating this point about we are our own greatest problem. Even after we come to Christ, we deal with this internal selfishness. And Ted Tripp says, I'm always reminded of this, when one night he said he and his wife were sitting in their living room and they'd raised their children. They'd been married for about 40 years And he thought he was going to be really nice to his wife. And he said, honey, let me go get you some ice cream. And she said, oh, that sounds great. And so he goes to the refrigerator and he gets some ice cream and he scoops it out in the bowls. And he said, he's coming back to take this ice cream because he's done such a good job and he's caring for his wife. And he says, while he's walking back to give her the ice cream, he starts looking at the bowls and he starts weighing to see which one has more ice cream. And he starts thinking, this one has a little more. I think I'll give her this one. And he says, this is what's going on in his heart. And he says, this is a woman who has washed my socks for 40 years, and I'm trying to rob her out of an ounce of ice cream. (laughs) And what he's saying is, the Bible's right. I'm my own greatest problem. And we come into the world this way. And the fact is, we're often deceived about it. We don't even see it. But the news gets worse. Keep reading in the text. Not only are we spiritually dead, but the Bible says we are hopelessly enslaved. Look at verse 2. Verse 1, we're dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, here's what it's saying. You are, you are dead, given over to these trespasses and sins. This is the bent of our heart, and we walked that way, or we lived that out. Now, that's going to be contrasted in the end of, of the passage. If you look at verse 10, where it says, We are now God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should what? Walk in them. So here's the two bookends. You were once in sins and walked this way. Now God has done something to make you alive, and now you walk this way. 
Well, what he's describing in verse 2 is this. You once walked or you had your, your course of life this way. You were hopelessly enslaved. And this answers the question, why do people do what they do? Well, because they're dead in trespasses and sins, and they walk this way, or they are enslaved to certain things, verses 2 and 3 will teach us. Did you know that's a, that's a question that is constantly circulated today? Why did this happen? Why do people take guns and shoot people in public places? Why, why do people behave this way? Why do people do evil things? Why do these things take place and they keep happening? And so they pull people and they get the psychologists and the talking heads on the shows and on the social networks and they keep talking around it. Well, we need more education. We need more money. We need more mental health. We need all of these things. And they keep talking around and around while everything keeps spiraling down and down and down. And the Bible says... Let me tell you, here's why these things keep happening. Because outside of Christ, we are hopelessly enslaved. Enslaved to what? To who? Well, there are three things that he's going to tell us in this passage. In verse 2, Ephesians 2, he says, You once walked following the course of this what? World. We are hopelessly enslaved to the world outside of Christ. What is the world? The world is society organized without reference to God or eternity. You see, he says the word course, we follow the course of this world. It's talking about the contemporary age. So the age in which we live is described as a world. It's a way of thinking that leaves God out of the equation. It's a way of living that thinks entirely on a horizontal level and gives no thought to the fact that there is a God, there is a creator, and there even is accountability. And we're told that people outside of Christ are controlled by the course of this world, they walk in it. They're enslaved to it. How does that happen? How do people become enslaved to a world system or a way of thinking that completely leaves God out of the equation? Well, Psalm 1 tells us. Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And he'll go on and say, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And what Psalm 1 is describing is someone like this. Blessed, happy is the man, in a good place is the man who doesn't lend himself or give ear to counsel of the wicked. And there it's, it could be talking about deliberately wicked people, but more in general, I think it's just referencing to people who aren't intentionally telling you to sin this way, but it's people who are giving you counsel that leaves God out of the equation. That life is normal without God. You don't really need Him. In fact, it might be good for a rabbit's foot every now and then, maybe to bolster your self-esteem, but you don't really need Him. And it says that there's this constant bombardment of counsel of the wicked 
Standing in the way of the sinner, there's, there's kind of a progression here, listening to the council, standing in with them, and eventually sitting in the seat with those who actually scoff against God. What the Bible is saying is that there are people in the world system who do not know God. They are constantly sharing their opinions, creating a community kind of consciousness. They're constantly telling you this is the way to live, and they're trying to press you into their mold. You say, well, how does this happen? Well, you tell me, how is it that in our nation, in just a few short years, we went from a nation who looked down primarily on same-gender marriage to now accepting it openly and actually championing it? How does that happen? It's the course of the world. People start talking about it. They start putting emphasis on it. They start trying to press people into your understanding. Let's change the conversation. Let's change the dynamic. Let's press you into this way of thinking. Let's leave God out of the equation. That's not going to work in this. So here's what you must think. And now, people wouldn't even think to question that. Because it's the course of the world that presses you into this mold. This has been prevalent. This has been no more prevalent at any other time in history than it is today. Because of the ubiquitous nature of the ability of people to get their opinions out there. And it forms this kind of cultural consciousness that is constantly pressing on you to think in certain ways. And it says that people outside of Christ are enslaved to that. They just swallow it in. This is the way people think. A whole civilization is influenced by its editorials and entertainments and its opinions. And it's piled on top of each other. It's the repeat of Genesis chapter 6 and the Tower of Babel, where all of humanity got together and said, let us make this tower and defy God. And the Bible says that is a very real thing, even in the 21st century, that there is a course of this world that you should know exists and be aware of because people are enslaved to it, and it's only the power of God that delivers you from it. People are enslaved to the world. But there's more in our text. People are hopelessly enslaved, verse 2, to the course of this world, but they're also following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The course of this world and all of that conversation that tries to press you into its way of thinking is actually, according to our text, energized by a spirit. And that spirit is referred to as what? The prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Who is that? It's Satan. I believe that Satan is a real person. And he has a real agenda. And he does real work. 
And even by stating that, by 21st century scruples, I'm a knuckle-dragging, Bible-believing, pre-modernist. But I happen to believe the Bible. And this is what God says. There is a spirit, a real personality that enslaves people and presses upon them through the course of the world that they would leave God out of everything. His realm of activity is this. He's the prince of the power of the air. When the Bible speaks of the air, it speaks of three kinds of atmospheres. There's the the air we breathe, and then there's the celestial heavens where the sun and stars exist. And then there's the third heaven, the, the place where God resides. This is speaking of that atmosphere. He's the prince of the power of this atmosphere that surrounds our planet that makes it blue when you view it from space, or the reflection of it with the ocean. Now, I don't mean to be spooky about this, but you just think about what passes through our airwaves every day. He's the prince of the power of that, energizing that. And he's working in this way, according to verse 2. He is at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, he is energizing people who are dead in trespasses and sins. He's inspiring their imaginations, enhancing their intellect, inflaming their emotions, setting them up as a pinnacle for people to follow them. The Bible says this is the problem. People are enslaved to this. It's supernatural. Listen, why do you think, why do you think the rise of celebrity status is what it is today? That you have people that somehow are plucked from obscurity and all of a sudden they make this dramatic rise to celebrity status to where what they say carries a lot of weight with people and much of what they say is entirely against God. And somehow people swallow it. And they're looking for it. And they're almost longing to have it. The Bible says there is a spirit that is energizing people of disobedience. And they are taken in by this world system. And it causes them to be further degraded in their trespasses and sins. So why are people so susceptible to this? You would think people would have a sense of this. They would see it and they would resist it. There's some sort of moral restraint that Satan couldn't accomplish this among people created in God's image. Why does this happen? Well, that brings us to the third thing that we find ourselves enslaved to. Look at verse 3. We're told there are the sons of disobedience in verse 2, among whom we all, Paul puts himself in this category, once lived, this is before we were in Christ, we were alive to sin and trespass, and we once lived in three things, passions of our flesh, we carried out the desires of our body and the mind, and therefore we're by nature children of wrath. 
We are hopelessly enslaved to the world and to Satan and to the flesh if we're outside of Christ. What is the flesh? Well, it talks about the passions of our flesh. And their flesh doesn't simply mean your body, like I have this fleshy tissue. Because it's actually further delineated in the other parts of the verse. It talks about desires of the body. So that's obviously something different than passions of the flesh. It's not just restatement, it's elaboration. And when he talks about the passions of the flesh, that's the idea of emotions. And those passions in particular are those more animal instincts of emotions that drive people. And it's saying that people outside of Christ are actually enslaved to these kinds of animal appetites. These passions that tend to rule them and the flesh, that fallen part of people, is is working on these passions. And the world itself is, is engendering them. And the Spirit is energizing people to raise them up. So your flesh has to do with what you feel. And it says because that is the case, people carry out the desires of their body, this this desire of the body that is fulfilled sometimes in fleshly passions. And it talks about of the mind. That is what people think. And what we learn from the Bible is this, that a fallen nature has emotions, it has reasoning, and it has a will. And apart from the work of God in Christ, those things are always given over to disobedience to God. They are captive that way. In other words, here's the bad news. What is your problem? Your problem is around you. Yes, that's the world. Your problem is spiritual. Yes, that's the devil. But your problem is also you. You live with an internal traitor. Before one comes to Christ being dead in trespasses and sins, they are hopelessly enslaved to that. But even as a believer, when you come to faith in Christ and he gives you new life, you know that struggle. And that struggle looks like when I want to do what's good, there's this other part of me that is right there, and it's evil, and it says, don't do it. And I struggle, and that takes place in my mind and in my will and in my emotions. This is our problem. And because of this, because we are spiritually dead, and because apart from Christ we are hopelessly enslaved, we are justly condemned. That's why we're told the end of verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, under God's just wrath. It is right that God would condemn such people who entirely resist His rule and His reign in their life. Now, let me wrap this up this morning. Some of you are sitting here and you're saying, okay, we're talking about people who are outside of the church. They don't know Christ. Maybe people inside the church who've never really fully realized this. And yet you say, but I know some really good people who would even say they're not Christians. I mean, I know some outstanding moral people who are good people and do good things and want to help other people. And you're telling me, 
They're dead, and they're enslaved, and they're condemned. I don't see it. Well, there was a man, a preacher, named Andrew Fuller, and this was of many, many years ago, and, and Fuller was asked that question, and he answered that question by giving an illustration. He said, imagine this. Imagine you have a ship that is set off from a certain continent and it's taking its cargo to another place to sell that cargo and that is its trade, that's its endeavor. And that ship, somewhere along the way, there's a mutiny on that ship. And those mutineers take over the ship, they take over the captain and his officers and they stop by an island and they throw the captain and the officers off the ship And they get back on the ship, and they're intended to take the ship to a port of their choosing where they're going to sell the cargo and the ship, and all of them are going to benefit from the sale of that. Well, very quickly, those people that are on that ship in that mutinous endeavor, they realize that in order to accomplish what they need to accomplish, they've got to get along with each other. And so they decide to draw up some rules about how they'll live together, all right? There's, you can't shoot anybody, right? We're going to need everybody. Uh, You've you got to help someone when they're wounded and, and help them because we're going to need them to work in order to get the ship into the port so we can all prosper. And so they make these rules, and there's everyone works, and, and everyone must do their part and be kind to each other in some regard. And one day, somebody on that ship wakes up and says, you know what, I feel really, really bad about this. I mean, we're all nice to each other and everything, but... But we just, we just kicked off the officers and the captain. And this whole voyage just is wrong. It doesn't seem right. And everyone else begins to protest and say, what are you talking about? We're good people. Look, we help each other out. We're not killing each other. We've made these rules. We're striving for what's best. We're, we're trying to do good. This is a good thing, and it's going to benefit everybody. Those people keep saying, yeah, but the whole point of the endeavor is based on our rebellion. We've done wrong. We need to go back and turn. And the response would be, we will never do that. Beloved, this globe that we live on is a ship. And we're all on it together. And it is a ship that is designed for God's pleasure and God's will and to honor God in all things. His animals populate this planet. We breathe His air. This all belongs to Him. And yet what humanity has done from the beginning is said, but we don't want Him to be the captain, so we will take the booty and we will prosper ourselves. And those people can even be kind to one another, bearing the image of God in that endeavor, but the whole endeavor is based on rebellion. And people are enslaved to this, and it brings out the wrath of God. And this is exactly what Ephesians chapter 2 is describing. It's saying the whole endeavor is one set against God. This is our plight. Spiritually dead, hopelessly enslaved, justly condemned, 
And unless you turn, you will perish. Now, friends, next week, we're going to look and see what God did to deliver us from this plight. Because thank God, verse 4 begins with an amazing statement, but God did something. Not we did something, but God did something. But I just want to end with this today. If you are here this morning and something within you acknowledges this and accepts it, that's a work of God's grace to you. You say, yes, I agree. This is how the Bible describes me, and that's exactly what I am. But praise God, he saved me. But if you're here this morning and you look at this and you say, well, I'm not really that bad. You need to ask yourself the question, then you know what it really means to be saved. Have the lights ever been turned on for you? I'd be happy to talk to you about that if you have further questions. But praise God, although how sad our state is, that God does save. And so let's sing of that glorious truth as we close this morning. Let's pray together.